Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Ambassadors Forum radio show here on True Talk 800 AM KPDQ. I'm your host, Roy Swart, father of seven, MIT graduate, active engineer in the high-tech industry, and most importantly, bought and paid for bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our mission here at the Ambassadors Forum is to equip you to be able to answer life's hard questions the same way Jesus did. Today we're going to interview a very prominent pastor in the evangelical community today, Josh Moody. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to it. So you were a pastor at Yale for many years. Some may consider that a fairly secular and progressive culture, a place where apologetics, the reasonable and intellectual defense of our faith, could have a lot of application. But now you're at College Church in Wheaton, Illinois. Uh, Wheaton, considered by some to be the mecca of conservative Christianity in the United States. To put it bluntly, is there an opportunity for apologetics in Wheaton? (laughs) Oh, I love the way you frame it. Yeah, that's good. It is a different kind of ministry in many ways. I mean, as we know, the gospel is the same and people are the same. I actually think there is a big need. So one of the things Mm. I discovered when I first came here is that there were sort of generations of teenagers who had grown up in very good youth groups, a good mixture of fun and Bible teaching and spiritually healthy. But I had a whole sort of slew of parents uh, saying to me, you know, can you meet with my Johnny who's gone off to this or that university and he's really struggling with some very Mm. difficult questions. Could you meet with him? I was like, well, sure, yeah. And so I sit down with these people, and the questions they were struggling with were like 101 basic stuff that mm. we are working through with people when they're like 12, 13 in England, you know, in a very mm. secular context. And what I realized is they've been taught the Bible, but they've never been taught how to answer the problem of suffering. Mm. They've never been taught why should I believe the Bible really is authoritative, let alone inerrant. Mm. And when they came across teachers who were like, actually, how can you believe in a God of love when there's all this suffering in the world? It blew their mind. I was like, have you really never had the opportunity to think that through? And the answer is often not. Mm. So since then, we've built into a lot of our ministries apologetic content because we live in a globally connected world. And even if you don't go off to a secular university, you go off to a Christian university, you'll face things and you just turn on the computer or your phone, you're going to face stuff. So you need to mm. be equipped. So yeah, I think it is. It's different, but it's very important in whatever context you're in. Our apologetics ministry is based here in Portland, Oregon, and it's probably very similar to New Haven, Connecticut. So we spend a lot of time in coffee shops, and Mm. it's been fascinating. If you walk into a coffee shop in Portland, Oregon, the questions that are being asked, you know, no one assumes the Bible is true. No one assumes that Christ is risen. No one assumes that God is real. And recently, we were college shopping with one of my daughters, and we went to Wheaton, and we sat in a coffee shop in Wheaton, <laughs> and it, the, the contrast was fascinating. Overhearing yep. all the conversations oh, in no. a Wheaton coffee shop, it was, you know, I just, I'm not sure what God wants me to do with my life, and, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm trying to minister to the poor and the needy in I our know. culture, and how do I do that? And 
and I thought, boy, I wonder if apologetics. <laughs> is, yeah, which is a one, it's a good or... thing. I mean, it totally freaked me out when I first came here. I mean, I'd go into a coffee shop and find like four people with the Bible open. Yeah, so where have I come to? Is this the Taliban or something? It's, I mean, really, it just felt very, very odd. So it is different. You know, some of the questions are not exactly the same. There are questions about practicality, and I think one of the differences around here is people are much more aware of the sort of evangelical subculture conversations, you know, what's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention and what's the latest book that sold well. Mm. So there's a need for clarity about gospel health here, mm. whereas at Yale, people had sort of stereotypes of what Christians believe. They weren't reading the latest Christian book, so you didn't have to worry about whether <laughs> it was idiotic or helpful because no one was reading it anyway, whereas here, <laughs> you know, they really read that stuff. How do you balance the idea of being respectful and honoring Christians and what is going on with the church when sometimes they are kind of working against the work of preparing and equipping our young people to be able to handle those tough questions and that secular culture when they get into college. Yeah, you just have to be sort of honest. I mean, I was just doing a Bible study with some men in our congregation right before this, and we were looking at Second Timothy, and there's that bit in, Second Timothy chapter 3, where Paul says, but there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, but not lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. So Paul was actually talking about people who look like Christians. Mm. The truth of the matter is, in this stage of salvation history, between the time when Jesus sent the Spirit and when he returns, there will be false Christian religion. So sometimes I come across people who've said, I can't believe in Christianity because, you know, this is the kind of church I went to and this is what they said. And I'm thinking, you're kidding. If that had been my experience, I'd be where you are. It's awful. <laughs> There's a lot of false religion out there. Now, having said that, sometimes people very unfairly criticize Christians. And I think we have to then defend the church. I mean, we're not claiming to be perfect. Obviously, we're claiming sure. to follow a perfect Lord. And that means that there's no shame at the church, but we don't want to stay the same. We want to grow and become better. That's a great approach that I think Christians need to take in so many different aspects, whether it's you know, women in the church or slavery, critical race theory. There are a lot of things where the church hasn't got it right in the past, and sometimes just a simple acknowledgement to start off and say, yeah, we haven't always got it right, and there's probably a lot of things that we don't have right today, and let's own those, and then let's get on to the other topic of discussion. When you yeah. can't engage in that transparency up front, it's a lot harder to have those big conversations later on. Yeah, I think that's important. and people get sometimes get turned around about what we're saying. And if my message was, church is always wonderful and it's the best thing ever, come and join us, I don't think that'd last very long. <laughs> oh. You know, because I don't, I don't think that's true. But I think Jesus is amazing. And the closer we get to him, the better life is. So come and join us. That's yeah. a very different sort of message. Yeah. A lot of kids, the majority of kids raised in good Christian homes are leaving the faith. If that's true, and I think it is, where do you think the root of that failure is? It's not the gospel. The gospel hasn't right. failed. Where have things failed? Or maybe 
that's just the way things are and that's not a failure. What are your thoughts? Yeah, with the the surveys, when I've been close to that, so much depends on your premise. Like, what is a Christian? Are they including in that traditional mainline Christianity? Are they including in that traditional Roman Catholicism? So anyway, I'm not saying there's nothing there. Sure, I think there sure. is. I suppose the other reason why I'm a bit of a cynic about some of that stuff is the circles I've grown up in and being a part of, I haven't seen that. Hmm. Like, I don't know. I'm trying to think of anyone I know who grew up in the churches I went to or who's left the faith. I can't think of a single person. I think what we're actually seeing is a rapid decline of nominal Christianity. Hmm. And what's been left is the real thing. In the 40s and the 50s, it was normal to go to church. Everyone called themselves a Christian. And then when it became unuseful to be called a Christian, you know, it didn't help you get a better job, it didn't, it didn't have any social cachet or status, mm. then people gradually drifted away. And what you discover is they never really were Christians anyway. Mm. And then at the same time, you're beginning to see in some of these places in Europe is the churches that are preaching the gospel, by and large, are flourishing and growing. I think what we're seeing is the decline of Western Christendom. Mm. And I'm not one of those who necessarily thinks that's a good thing. I mean, one of the advantages of being in a place where there is some Western Christendom is there's at least gives freedom for the gospel to be preached. Mm. So some of those people who have drifted away from the faith who never really were Christians, back in the day, they would have sat on local councils at cities and being judges at courts and being politicians who would have voted for laws that would have made it easier for the gospel to flourish. Mm. That's a good thing. Sure, <laughs> yeah. you know. So I'm, I don't think it's good that's going away. On the other hand, people get confused as to what real Christianity is. As that sort of fake Christianity diminishes, it becomes more obvious what the real thing is. I think that's mostly what we're seeing. So I think we have to rest on God's sovereignty, those of us who are parents. I mean, I know parents who've been done a really good job with their children and their children turned out pretty disastrous <laughs> and i know other parents who frankly have been pretty awful their children seem to turn out wonderful mm. Mm. and that's unusual usually it's not that way around there are certain norms you should follow but it is god's power at work and the individual responsibility of the child what they do with it so there's a sovereignty piece of god that is very important to bring in and then i think as an individual parent so you have to think through what you have as a parent that you can contribute that no one else can contribute. The piece you can contribute is reality. So that the children I know of families who seem to turn out well tend to be, number one, they know that they're loved. And that's different from being loved. That's knowing you're loved. And that's a much harder skill to communicate to someone. <laughs> they need to know they're loved. And none of us can quite believe we really are loved and wanted. So they tend to know that they're loved and they tend to have had parents who've been open, frank, and genuine with their faith. Not always had all the right answers. They've just been the real deal. That's really good. We have found it to be much more effective to be even honest with your doubts or your questions. Kids can receive that and accept that and respect that and say, okay, so my parents don't have everything figured out, or, or maybe even my pastor doesn't have all the answers, 
but we're on a path, we're on a journey, and we have conviction that the Bible does contain all truth. We just may not have gotten all of it yet, and so people can respect that and follow that. It's when people pretend to have the truth and then they're exposed, you just lose. You don't want to tell your child that you not sure you really do believe in Jesus anymore, but you do sure. want to say sometimes it's hard and that sometimes I struggle. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. good. Well, the three probably primary topics that we've encountered in apologetics are reliability of the Bible, science versus the Bible, and ethics and social issues. Mm. If you were to summarize just in a soundbite what you think the most important reality or truth in each of those topics is Mm. and to kind of ground people in the Christian faith and in a loving God, what would you say about those three topics? Hmm. Yeah, the soundbite. Well, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Just to make it hard. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good question. So, okay, so there's science and Christianity. I would say the number one most important thing is to understand enough about the history of science to realize they are not in conflict. And there are some good studies done on this that show that science began in a certain cultural atmosphere that was actually fueled by protestant christian beliefs so the protestant christian rallying cry was back to the bible back to the source Mm, and back to the book of god and the scientists picked up on that and said well let's go back to the book of nature Mm. so anyway the soundbite would be understand the history of science enough to realize they're not in conflict i think the key here is i have a particular approach to this that is a little different than the ones I sometimes come across. When I talk with people, I've almost always found it the most helpful. Mm. So what I tend to say is, pick up a gospel, let's say Luke, reasonably historically accurate. I'm not asking you to accept anything else other than it. You know, you don't have to accept it all, but basically historically accurate. Let's read it. Come across Jesus. You come to a point when you want to follow him. Okay, how does he treat the scriptures? And that's where you start. When you start that way, then you start from a premise of if Jesus quoted from the Old Testament authoritatively, and I follow Jesus, I should at least start from that premise. Mm. And then you work out from there. So that'd be that one. And then the ethics one. Yeah, I have a soundbite on that. It's not mine. It's from um, Martin (laughs) Lloyd-Jones. I think the biggest error we are making right now in that regard, he said, it is a heresy to expect non-Christians to behave like Christians. We have made, and I'll make a huge error, where we try and force our morality through political means or rhetorical means on non-Christians. Huge error. Our job is to preach Christ and to pray for freedom so the gospel can flourish. And when someone comes to Christ, then they're faced by Jesus' call in their life, and then they have to deal with these very personal issues. And people I've known, obviously, behind that is usually, you know, the whole gender, sexuality thing these days. But people I've known who have come out of that background, come to faith, it's always been they've started with Jesus. And then they read the Bible. It's like, oh, that's what Jesus thinks about this. Right. Well, I love him. I don't understand that, but I'm going to follow that. 
It's a heresy to expect a non-Christian to behave like a Christian. I'm glad you quoted Martin Lloyd-Jones. I'm reading his book, Studies on the Sermon of the Mount. I remember underlining in my book <laughs> that exact quote. As I have committed my own time and focus to study and apply apologetics, I don't know if this is right or not, but for me, I've come to the conclusion that in this culture, you know, the United States Western culture, and in this time period, the, the 21st century, I have found apologetics to be more effective when it is refuting falsehoods mm. than proclaiming truth. Mm. It's a little unusual, but, you know, maybe a little more Second Corinthians 10.5, you know, tearing down false arguments rather mm. than Ephesians 4.15 about speaking the truth. Mm. I don't know if it's right or not, but where have you found apologetics most effective today and here? Yeah, I tend to think of the communication means. So then there's obviously preaching, there's writing, and there's personal ministry. Mm. So in personal apologetic ministry, my approach is always sit down with the guy and say, okay, obviously I've thought about these things a lot. Over to you. What would be most helpful? Mm. So I let the person set the agenda because I'm there to serve. And often the thing you think they want to talk about actually isn't. So that's how I do it. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's how listening. I deal with that one. <laughs> yeah, right. And they'll say, well, actually, I want to talk about this. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then we talk about it. With pulpit ministry, I find it's important to weave into exposition. And maybe this sounds like it's affirming and agreeing with what you just said apologetics. I think that the apologetic approach of a mixture of worldview stuff and evidential mm. stuff, a mixture mm. of presuppositional and evidential mm. is about right. The most powerful apologetic I think we all need is a real live Christian mm. in our, that we know. I sometimes say we need less salesmen and more free samples. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so you actually need to meet someone. It's like, ah, oh, that's what they're talking about. Yes. I like that. First Peter 3.15 is kind of the traditional scripture that a lot of apologetics ministries go to. And a lot of people like to focus mm. on the portion of the verse that says, Always be prepared to make a defense. Very intellectual, very, you've got a better argument than them. You'll win the debate. And I always try and focus on the later part of the verse that says, anybody who asks you mm. a reason for the hope that's in you. And so mm -hmm. if you can't just say, here's all the facts and here's all the data about why Christianity in general is true. It's like, you really need to tailor that for you and your own testimony and your own thoughts and your own experience needs to be really woven into that. And I think a lot of people can miss that. And so I love that idea of a, a real live Christian in front of you. I think yeah. when we met God, at least for a lot of people, maybe there's some exceptions, but I know for me, I became a Christian because I met God. Yeah. You know, and then later after I met him, then I processed all these things about the Bible and all these theological mm -hmm. considerations, and I tried to make it all make sense, and I had lots of questions, but my faith wasn't shaken because I had the person guiding mm -hmm. me. It was because I met God, and I think it would be very difficult to say, I want you to be a Christian. I want you to be fully devoted 
to this life, but you're not going to meet the person until the very end. <laughs> I think that's a right. that's a tough way to do it. And so, right to summarize for our listeners, what would Jonathan Edwards's contributions to apologetics of how you would arrive at good answers to the hard questions that so many of us have? Yeah. What would I say? Well, yeah, my work on him was looking at his response to the Enlightenment. One way of looking at that is it's the birth of secularization. And my argument was that Edwards' approach was to create a proactive response to the Enlightenment through what I called a spiritual epistemology or knowing the presence of God. And Edwards had, let's summarize it, two strategies in that regard. One was to use the language and even some of the ideas of his day as a bit like a, a pill that carries the medicine, right. a sweetened pill that carries the medicine. Mm. So he used particularly the word light, mm. which was prominent in his day, the Enlightenment, the light, this age of light inquiry. He used one of his famous sermons was a divine and supernatural light immediately imparted is both a rational and spiritual doctrine. Word light, you don't pick it up because you read it, you just hear a bunch of other stuff. But that word light, <laughs> it's similar to the word authenticity today. You say authenticity, and it has the sort of cachet to it that connects. Mm. And so first he used some of the ideas and some of the terminology of his day. It's a risk, of course, because it carries with it its own freight sure. of ideology, like the word authenticity does yeah. Yeah. today. Yeah. But he still took that risk to use it because you've got to communicate. And so that would be one, creatively using the ideas and even the terminology of his day, even the secularization ideas and terminology of his day, to communicate to people. The second thing he did was to not only do some little evidentialist things, work out a reframing of philosophy and theology in such a way that encountering God is no longer so weird. Mm -hmm. So the basic problem we have is that we tend to think of sort of God somewhere up there, you know, out there, up there. Like, how am I going to reach him? How is he going to connect with me? Last question, and just yeah. for fun. You said you were born and grew up outside of London, so a very British culture and kind of encountered in your childhood and early years. And then you've spent a lot of time in the U.S. the last couple of decades. How would you describe the similarities and differences in a British and U.S. approach to apologetics? Hmm. Yeah, interesting. So John Lennox would yeah. be the contemporary equivalent of a C.S. Lewis, Lewis kind of person, I would think there'd be quite a lot of similarity. Mm. The difference probably is that British evangelicals made a conscious, unconscious strategic decision to try to stay in the universities as they were getting more secular, whereas the American evangelical system made a conscious decision to set up alternative universities and institutions. Ah, interesting. Okay. So the you tend in British evangelicalism to get these centers of evangelicalism right next to a very secular school. Mm. And there are strengths and weaknesses to that, I think. Right. I mean, the strengths are that you're much more engaged with what people really are thinking who are secular, mm. and it's not like they're in a different universe. You, right. you meet them in the coffee shop, you go into the same library, you talk to them, you know them personally. So that's a huge strength. The weaknesses are that there are 
principalities and powers and structures and bureaucracies that make it more difficult for if you have a hold to a conservative Christian point of view to get the same prominence. And so sometimes such folk get marginalized from influence in, in those kind of institutions and therefore younger Christians get influence in a less healthy way. Probably the difference is like a huge, massive evangelicalism infrastructure in America built right. up over these separate institutions. Uh, versus a much smaller, much more grassroots, much less sophisticated, more connected to secularism, sort of apologetics. That's probably the difference. Oh, that's a great insight. Well, Dr. Moody, thank you for being on the show with us today. I've enjoyed our conversation and your perspectives and uh, the truth that you've shared. Thank you very much for your time today. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Roy. Well, how about you? Have you spent your whole life in church hearing sophisticated sermons and complex hermeneutics but feel like you still don't have a firm grasp on the basics of a Christian worldview? As Dr. Moody described it today, Bible 101? Well, you can visit our website at theambassadorsforum.com for more resources to help you put it all together into a consistent way of thinking that makes sense of the world around us. Finally, thank you for joining us on the radio today. You can join us every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on True Talk 800 a.m. KPDQ. I pray that God will raise you up in your own faith and send you out to share that faith with others in the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until next time, I'm Roy Swart. May the Lord bless you and keep you. 